This is The Lab with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. A new show we're doing, which is going to be an exploration of works, an exploration of concepts. Each week, we'll bring in a different work, different concept, and each of us will explore it for about five minutes apiece, and then we'll talk about it. There will also be uh, Patreon-exclusive B-side episodes, which will be a little looser and a little bit more informal. And we'll have about one of these out every week, one main and one patron episode. We're starting this week with Whiplash and the theme of intensity. Helen, kick us off. Okay, I'm going to go first. Well, um, I hope I don't let everybody down with my with my takes. Um, so I watched it again last night, having seen it a number of years ago. Um, I always have a like, really strong feeling in response to Damien Chazelle films, but maybe I can go into that a little bit uh, in greater detail. So we were going to talk about this sort of theme of intensity. And there are a few sort of theoretical points related to the idea of intensity that came to mind when watching the film. And I guess they sort of relate to some of the thinkers I'm interested in, Marx, Freud, Lacan and Hegel. So the first of them is this idea of transference. So we have this main character training to be a jazz uh, drummer and he has this very intense, horrific, scary, basically abusive teacher. Um, I'm really into sort of psychoanalysis and the theory of psychoanalysis, like kind of traditional psychoanalysis. And I often hear that there's a um, sort of a misconception about psychoanalysis, that it's about going to therapy and having this kind of patriarchal figure who knows everything about theory, who you know, sits there and reads your mind, reads what's going on in your mind, when it couldn't be further from the truth, because it's, it's about transference and then breaking that transference when you kind of realise that this person who you assume to be knowledgeable and omnipotent is also a split subject. And so you come to the understanding that we all are lacking split subjects and that nobody has this totalising answer about the world. And I think it's sort of like, obviously films aren't there necessarily to get everything theoretically correct. <laughs> you know, this isn't a Freudian film or whatever, but it is sort of interesting that I think it's something that, you know, in terms of this idea of transference, like for me, if I was making this film, I would find a way to reveal that the character, the teacher at the end is actually, you know, that the, the jazz drummer doesn't become as much of an, you know, horrible asshole as this guy, but that maybe that, that we discover that something's lacking. But in order for that to take place, in order for the lack to be revealed, in the big other transference has to take place you can't just get there you know get there and realize um the lacking big other without it so Zizek talks a lot about sort of the this falsity of the the hippie parent that the hippie parent isn't some magical solution to make your child less you know more free and less neurotic but can actually make your child even more neurotic so you do need these sort of transferential figures where you have this experience that they know everything and then you're kind of disabused of that fact. There are a couple of other things in terms of uh, notions to do with like enjoyment and value that I was thinking about. Obviously, you know, this, this film is about somebody who is uh, trying to become the greatest jazz musician ever or whatever. But it is, you know, isn't I actually, you know, my practice is in within the arts. And there's this tension between sort of like trying to be the best person ever. I think the film does a 
you know, sort of a job of um, highlighting him in particular as this vehicle of greatness. And a lot of the comments he talks about, you know, I'd rather die at 34, you know, um, maybe drunk but famous and having achieved something, rather than like the actual art itself. And this is something I noticed in La La Land and other other films by the same director. Um, but obviously, part of, I think there's a, a fallacy and there's this kind of a capitalistic idea of within things like, you know, sports and the arts of these people who've managed to make it and be really successful and powerful and achieved a great deal, that it's all through the value of that, the why we hang a gold medal around their neck is because they have pushed themselves so far to achieve that goal. But really, the value is to do with the sacrifice of all those people who have tried, who haven't actually managed to get to that pinnacle, or the contingent things have got in the way, you know, I don't know, a marathon runner might have become ill or injured, or, you know, a, a musician might not have been able to have the means to reach the pinnacle of training or whatever. So, you know, it's not really, I think there's a real fallacy, and it comes out in the sort of narrative form that we have which I don't think is a bad thing, um, but the certain ideological narrative form within sort of Hollywood movies of like, at your own hand, you can make it to be to be the greatest. So value is created through sacrifice, but it includes all the people who haven't been able to achieve what you've achieved. Um, and then the last thing I kind of, well, there's a couple of more ideas, but I'll save them for the later discussion. There's a couple of more ideas that I have in terms of um, enjoyment and intensity. So obviously this process of he's he's striving, he's pushing himself, his hands are bleeding, he's sweating all over the drums to get to the point of this pinnacle of achievement. You know, there, there's a sort of like very sexual element to it. You know, there's a sort of, um, I guess, you know, <laughs> within sex, I guess that the point is that, you know, the, the, the moment before having sex is the thing that's the pleasurable thing. And, but the actual achievement of whatever is is essentially a nothing you're kind of let down so you know as as human subjects we we orientate ourselves around fantasy that we will do everything we can to achieve but the fantasy is never this transcendental thing that's I mean it remains a fantasy it can never make us whole complete it can never fill in this lack that we believe it will so the point being, again, he talks about this this jazz musician who died at 34, depressed alcoholic. You know, he became the greatest jazz musician, but it didn't do anything to fill this kind of essential lack that we all experience. So the point being is that in this intense pursuit, we have to realize where the enjoyment is. And the enjoyment is in this painful pleasure, which is before the achievement, in the process of, achieve, of achieving, in the process of going towards the goal. And we as humans could often be like really unhappy because we suffer, 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 sacrificing everything that we you know, possibly can in order to maintain this fantasy. If only we could achieve this fantasy, we'd feel whole and complete. But when we get that fantasy, we're completely melancholic. It doesn't resolve anything. It doesn't fill any lack. Or we don't achieve the fantasy and we think, like, if only I had, I had achieved it, I would not be depressed. So you can be depressed or melancholic. But really, the value and the enjoyment resides in this, you know, between place, in this towardsness and this intense experience. You know, if you're going to push yourself, if you're going to really experience this intensity, then you have to realise that that's all the enjoyment you're ever really going to get is in that place rather than on the other side of becoming, you know, this world-renowned jazz drummer. Yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think um, one thing that really struck me, I suppose, was this kind of inhuman 
character of the drive, which I think relates obviously to what you're saying, Helen. But, you know, the fact that he risks his life in a way, he almost kind of dies. There's a terrible scene where he kind of isn't looking, he's on the phone, he's desperately trying to get to a late rehearsal before a competition. And, you know, and, and he kind of, he runs off kind of damaged and, and the, the kind of repeated scenes of the bloodletting. And so that the kind of inhuman drive or the intensity is sort of stripping away his very body in a way. It's kind of, you know, he's falling apart basically in the name of this um higher dedication and yeah i think i think in that sense it was a, it was quite an interesting representation of that that drive and other films that came to mind most obviously i suppose were things like black swan um which kind of does a similar thing in terms of the kind of intensity of um the dance or dancing and the kind of identitarian split that this engenders in the in the dancer and also this other film called The Kindergarten Teacher, actually, which is a very interesting film. And that's more from the other side, which is to do with the kind of pedagogical relation or, you know, you talked about transference, Helen. But I think there's something very, very fascinating about this film in terms of this question of what pedagogy is and what it isn't. And, you know, from way back in the when the Greeks talk about pedagogy, there's always a kind of erotic question of pedagogy. It's very there's there's transference in, you know, when the Greeks think about pedagogy as well you know pedagogy is sort of etymologically leading the child but there are multiple different ways of doing that you can do it through a kind of seduction you can do it through sort of force and violence you can do it through gentle encouragement you know there's all these sort of different techniques and obviously we're presented with this very very you know aggressive abusive violent man who who thinks that this is the way of encouraging greatness and everybody's on the lookout for greatness somebody wants to be great the teacher wants to find a great person and it's completely undecidable he says when they meet later after the kind of fall after they've both kind of fallen um from their their original desire you know the teacher says um i don't think i ever found my charlie parker you know but it was it's completely undecidable from not not only for the reasons that you say helen about who has access to things you know we might never know who has talent and and you know in a way it's a there's so much contingency in success or genius um as well as the drive and all these other factors um but that kind of it, it really reminded me of the kindergarten teacher which is a film in which uh, a sort of a female teacher believes that one of her male pupils is a poetic genius and becomes completely obsessive in trying to encourage and elicit this kind of genius from this boy and um, to the extent that it becomes uh, abusive you know that her desire to kind of draw out this this talent that she sees she believes that no one else can see it you know and her the boy's family is very sort of broken and damaged and they're not particularly academic and and she's the one who can see this genius and to the extent that she ends up kind of kidnapping the child and be, gets arrested and and so on and and there's something like about the drive of the pedagogue as well you know this kind of competing drives you know what what is it that that people are looking for when they're looking for or they, when they see greatness, especially when no one else really recognises it. And, yeah, I think that's something I wanted to kind of talk about a bit more, this pedagogical question and what this might mean, actually, for, for politics, because I think there is a sort of um, a problem of authority and pedagogy. You know, it's a kind of crisis of these things at the moment. You know, it's, it's not a surprise in the film that the teacher, through the... Um, the jazz drummer's actions kind of gets disciplined and then sacked. 
But at the same time, you know, what if it had worked? You know, would we retroactively say, well, the the abusive nature was justified because he stimulated the greatness? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Great, great. So here's my bit. Whiplash's tyrannical music teacher, Terence Fletcher, throws things at students who fail to meet his extraordinarily high standards. He finds it easy to justify himself. He says he is there to push people beyond what's expected of them. By elevating the standard of success to unobtainable heights, Fletcher hopes to produce genius. He doesn't worry about discouraging his students because true geniuses won't be discouraged. By attacking the egos of his students, Fletcher puts them in an existential situation. To continue to build their identities around their abilities as musicians, they must find a way to develop their talent. His assault is not so much on their bodies as it is on their self-concepts. The struggle to surmount his withering critiques is a struggle to preserve the ego. This means that the students who are most responsive to Fletcher's style are the ones who are most psychologically dependent on their identity as musicians. It's not a style that suits people who love music. It's a style that suits people who love being thought of as great musicians by others. Liberal political theory doesn't really trust intrinsic substantive value. We aren't sure an artist is truly great unless that artist is performing as a matter of survival. We want our artists to be starving and to learn to do the kind of art that will rescue them from that state. Our artists starve in two senses. One is literal. Artists struggle to pay the bills and earn a living. But the other is more insidious. The artist struggles to preserve the artist's own identity as an artist, and that means the artist is constantly trying to persuade themselves and others that they are truly worthy of their title. We want art not for art's sake, but for the sake of the survival of the ego. As modern people lose confidence in the reality of the good, they fetishize struggle more and more. If we can't tell the difference between good art and bad art, we can at least tell the difference between art that was the product of struggle and art that was easy to make. Or at least we think we can. We see the same development in political theory, too. Ancient political theorists imagined virtuous societies, but modern political theorists envisage little more than glorious struggles. Montesquieu worried that virtue was unobtainable, that we had no choice but to build societies around honor. Nietzsche mocked virtue outright, arguing not merely that geniuses should struggle with each other for dominion ceaselessly, but that struggling is in their nature. Hannah Arendt sanitized Nietzsche's struggle by condemning violence and hierarchy, but her theory celebrates a public realm where people compete endlessly to establish glorious reputations and legacies. If we can't love art for its own sake, all we can do is use art to make money, to prop up our egos, and to dunk on each other. Without intrinsic value, everything we do is instrumentalized. Without a link to a sense of truth, we retreat ever further into our egos, and that makes us vulnerable to attacks on our sense of identity. This makes it all too easy for the social system to intimidate us into producing obsequious work. The more we come to depend on our identities, the more vulnerable we are to criticism, and the more we fear criticism, the easier it is to force us into competitive games. Instead of making work of real value, we ceaselessly try to impress the teacher. The result is work that is not just derivative, but increasingly useless and stupid. To fit into the teacher's paradigm, we have to suspend our own judgment about what has value, and that means that gradually our values and culture become the product of a game of telephone. This is not to say that we shouldn't challenge students and one another from time to time, but these challenges don't have to involve existential threats to the survival of bodies and egos. Greatness doesn't require a Darwinian struggle. It requires genuine love of the thing. When we love what we're doing, we want to get better for its own sake. We take criticism not to defend our egos, but to get just a little closer to the values we strive to uphold. 
This kind of love requires a level of material and psychological abundance that too often we lack. Why the lack? Because it is through the lack that we can be most easily press-ganged into making whatever capitalism demands. Yeah, I think this is great. Like, uh, there's a lot of like through themes, I think, with a lot with what we're saying and sort of coming at it. You know, obviously, we have our like respective areas of interest and expertise, but actually, there's like quite a lot of, of crossover. There's one thing that I, um, to pick up on what, what Nina was saying, was um, about pedagogy, you know, as in like the, the teacher being the one who um, has an element of transparency and is looking for the genius, genius. Um, you know, young person that they that they uh, elicit the genius from. I mean, all of us have like been teachers in one form or another. Have you guys ever had an experience where you thought like, I have, you know, I've recognized in this student something that nobody else has seen? Yeah, I think there's a kind of interesting question about sort of polyvalence and potentiality, you know, almost I don't know, in the Agambenian sense or when Marx talks about communism in the German ideology, there's a sense in which we don't yet know what we're capable of. We don't yet know who we are, actually. Like, to to even say we have an identity, of course we have a kind of, you know, a capitalist identity and and, and so on. And I, I very much agree with what Benjamin was saying about the weakness of identity in terms of how that becomes then the, the lack or the leverage, you know, the way into actually um, forcing people to compete because it's not about the thing or the value. It becomes about your fragile, you know, something that is actually incredibly difficult to base any truth upon, you know. And, and I think that the the body as a conduit is, is interestingly explored in this film. But I think, yeah, I mean... I think it's there's something kind of tragic sometimes I felt when I was teaching for three years and you could see people who had this great love of the subject and often in the third year people would get kind of completely obsessed with philosophy like they would have a sort of subjective transformation after about two years and become completely immersed and obsessive about the topic and want to talk about it all the time and you would know that the vast majority of these people wouldn't really then go be able to use directly anything that they were being taught or had learnt in a certain way. Um, but nevertheless, they were kind of possessed of this enthusiasm. And enthusiasm is this kind of quite religious term. It's like being filled with God in a certain way. And you could see it in them. And on the one hand, this is amazing. What a thing to sort of be part of, um, encouraging but on the other hand, what use does it have in this world where they, they now leave with £50,000 of debt and probably a terrible job or no job, you know, if, especially if you're not teaching at elite institutions? You know, none of my students had anywhere necessarily to go afterwards. And, you know, that, I almost felt a kind of guilt sometimes that they'd been awakened in this way. And, you know, I was thinking about Socrates and the question of ego dissolution, again, what, with reference to what Benjamin was saying, in a way to break down somebody so that they kind of, I mean, it's psychoanalytic too, of course, or to um, provoke this process where someone holds on to an idea and they have to kind of let go of it in a certain way, or they, or they end up in aporia, they end up in a state of the pathless path, or they're a kind of state of confusion where they can't, in a way, ground their concepts on anything. And that kind of process um is very disturbing and this is obviously part of the reason why why figures like socrates socrates in particular become a great threat because they they threaten to undermine the foundations not in a revolutionary violent sense but in a conceptual sense 
you know, all of the things that are supposed to be valued are called into question, perhaps in order to elevate them, you know, as Plato puts it, but it also takes them away from the polis and from the everyday life and, and you know, so away from capitalism in our world in a certain way. Um, you know, and, and so to hold on to that drive. And also I'm reminded of Get Carter, you know, the sheer desire for, for vengeance or vengeance films where someone is just possessed of a particular drive. You know, they've, they've got one thing and it's to get revenge and that's the motive force. And it doesn't matter what gets destroyed on the way, including the the vengeance seeker. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's almost the, the zombie possession, like this guy. And I think Benjamin was saying this as well, that like, you know, where where is his... What, what is he really getting out of his process? Like, is he is he enjoying this process? But well, in psychoanalysis, has like a weird relation to the word enjoyment. But like in layman's term, like he seems he seems to absolutely be hating this experience, you know. And almost the drive, as you say, it's like this possession to do absolutely anything, including annihilating yourself, um, in the hopes of achieving this thing. That as as Benjamin, you were saying, like, is it even great art, or is it just a form of technical proficiency that this particular dominating figure deems to be you know representative of um you know good jazz drum playing but also you know is uh, i mean i got into the arts thinking that it was all about you know naively potentially you know um uh finding out what doesn't fit within society or exposing the cracks, exposing, you know, the lax born of a better word. And instead, you know, when it becomes this sort of corporatized thing and pleasing the teacher, it becomes sort of a confirmatory, um, regurgitative, uh, almost propagandistic uh, form when really, you know, is, is, is the greater achievement to be developing something new or to be you know, exploding the form or taking it in a di- different direction. I don't know. Yeah, you have to demonstrate to the system that you are capable of fitting into it as it is before you will be permitted the opportunity to revise or reform it in any way. You know, so when I was teaching at Cambridge, students come in and they have all sorts of different ways of writing. And that the first thing that has to be done is they have to all learn to write in the ordinary way that you're supposed to write to do okay at Cambridge. And how do you get them to do that? Well, you do it through a sequence of carrots and sticks, mainly sticks, mainly criticism, but you occasionally give them small bits of praise sprinkled in. And Cambridge teachers, Oxford teachers, are very, very careful about not praising and not praising excessively because they want to keep the student worried about whether they really are a good student and whether they really belong there. We talk about imposter syndrome. This is cultivated to a significant degree. Uh, And the intimidation of the the very well-put-together, aesthetically well-put-together teacher who seems to know everything uh, is part of this cultivation of a sense of, do I really belong here? And then this need to prove that you belong there, right? And we, of course, problematize it when the student has a breakdown and intermits and isn't able to prove that they belong there, loses their confidence, can't produce new work. But there's some, there is a kind of implicit belief that by making students feel this way, we'll get more out of them. But of course, in the first instance, we just get them to parrot the aesthetics and the kinds of papers which we expect. And you know, then they do that, they get to the high 2-1 level, and then we go, well, you're not being creative enough for a first. And they go, well, what's a first? And 
you can't tell them exactly what it is. All you can do is tell them, well, it's it's creative and original, and and this is not that. Um, and of course, some of them do figure out how to do work, which which counts to us as a first. And we think when we're giving it a first that we're giving it a first because it's creative or original. But it's undergraduate work. So how creative or original is it going to be in any case? Are they just making the kinds of insights which we have set them up to make? And once they make those insights too often, we decide that, well, now that's common and now that's a 2-1. What, what do you think, Benjamin, like, like these days, obviously, um, I mean, I don't know whether you, there was like a trend, a differing trend over the course of your time at Cambridge, but like um, back in the day, definitely like the way that my my personal like educational journey was, was like very much in the ilk of what you say. But, you know, obviously we hear that now people are more sensitive and you can't do this, you can't do that, whatever. And obviously, like, this film came out in 2014, but, like, watching it, like, the first half where he's not he's not censured in any way, it's just like, what the fuck? You know, this is ridiculous. How can he be doing this? Although I have to say, it's interesting that, um, this is another point that I wanted to, like, maybe draw out, that um, I don't know whether it's, like, our, our, you know, mode of production today or, like, the political economy, but, like, I think in historical moments, a lot of abuse would have happened in um you know areas of struggle within within society but i actually think that under whatever form of neoliberal system we are now like a lot of the abuse happens in the more elite institutions obviously you have things like the u.s gymnastics um yeah i mean it happens often in lots of things like the, the british team who won endless tour de france's and the british cycling team who were endlessly winning golds left right and center um suddenly the athletes were saying that, you know, this was not pastorally okay and whatever. And so obviously at the time when they were winning, 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 it was all okay. And then suddenly, you know, it becomes abusive and comments are made about this, that and the other. Um, so do, do you see that mode of teaching dying out or have they, are they kind of clinging on to it at Cambridge? Or do you see sort of, obviously, you know, Nina, we've been talking about the amount of debt that students in the UK are getting into now, and that that changes the dynamic somewhat, both in terms of what students need out of their education, putting them into a precarious situation. And also, you know, there's this thing of, you know, the student is the customer, but they're not really because, you know, they're sort of forced into this. It's more like indentured, I think, than being a customer. But does that change the dynamic at all? And have you seen it sort of have an impact? Well, I think that Cambridge is the place which is, slowest to go the American way. And the American way is exemplified by Harvard. And at Harvard, it's very difficult to get non-A's. It's very difficult to get bad grades increasingly. Uh, and this is kind of spreading through the elite institutions of the United States. When I was at University of Chicago for my master's, right around when Whiplash came out, uh, everybody at Chicago said, well, Chicago is much, much tougher than the Ivy League schools. It's much harder to get good grades than the Ivy League schools. I had gone to Warwick for undergrad, and Chicago was much easier, much easier than Warwick, uh, let alone Cambridge, which I didn't even know at that time was much, much harder uh, than Warwick. Uh, University of Chicago was a walk in the park compared to Warwick, and all of the students who had gone to all of the Ivy League schools were saying that University of Chicago was the toughest place they'd ever been. I think what's going on in, in the States in particular is that now there's been a total collapse of there being any standards really at all and so now what they are trying to cultivate in students is confidence because if you're confident 
then you can project your ego more powerfully than other people. And in a world where there are no standards and it's just a battle of who has the strongest ego, who has the will to power, who's the most charismatic, in that Arendtian-Nietzschean struggle, someone who goes to Harvard is advantaged because they believe they know what they're talking about. Yeah, that's very insightful. I, I thought a lot about confidence when I was teaching at Roehampton. Um, and these are largely local working class students. And often one of the problems I had, very different from the distinct from the, the problems you're describing at Cambridge or the carrot stick model, was actually when students had understood something, getting them to understand that they'd understood. Because they were they were often very um, certain, paradoxically, that they didn't understand something that they understood, as in they lack confidence. You know, they didn't have the confidence necessarily, or quite often I had this experience, to really um, internalize or to grasp that they had grasped something. So a lot of the time I was saying, yes, that's that's it. You've got it. You know, you've, you've understood it. Um, and it's very interesting that you mentioned Warwick because I did my BA and my MA at Warwick. And I did philosophy there. And one of my philosophy lecturers, who happened to, to be a Nietzsche scholar, very interestingly and very it stuck in my mind, he would sort of repeatedly say to us one way or another that there was nothing interesting about us. Like he didn't care who we were. Like it didn't matter, um, you know, in a sense, anything about us, like anything about our identities wasn't interesting at all. He wouldn't even have used that word then. This is back in the late 90s. But that it was in a way that the nothingness was your power. It was like, why should I listen to you? You're not inherently interesting to me. You know, you're nobody to me. He would say, you know, you in a way, like fill yourself with interestingness was the challenge, I suppose. He was saying, you know, so it's it's a very opposite, I suppose, of that idea that we should respect people's identities and, and so on. It was it was basically saying you are nothing and that's good because in a way that you can you sort of, I don't know, rise to the challenge of, of becoming interesting. And I, mean, I really I really appreciated this. <laughs> It's really interesting because, like, um, the um, the the issue of sort of like beginning with emptiness, like being able to take in something. So you know, like when you have a baby, they have to get to a stage where they are able to like ingest food. And the the difficulty is, it's like you know, in order to be able to sort of like begin something, you have to have like you know, you have to like be within the lack in order to sort of fill yourself up. And then identity often can be used as obviously, you know, um, that that I think. Uh, I, I'm really against the sort of like um, facilization of psychoanalysis and like this idea that a psychoanalysis is just about sort of like overcoming repression because you do need certain repressions and you do need certain like you need you need an ego and all the sudden stuff to like enter into the world. But like you know that the the identity questions are sort of these totalizing kind of totems that you can hang your hat on, but ways to avoid this feeling of lack. And we we aren't okay within society we have become less and less okay with accepting our own nothingness or accepting our own lack and so you know this this whole thing of this jazz jazz drama you know like creating this identity i just you know that that the the um the meal where he's having i think with his family and he has relatives who are sort of the division three but you know division three and a, um football football players and just this sort of like desperate thing of like well that doesn't mean anything it's got to be this and it's got to be this particular thing and everything I can only be myself if I rely on this external signifier but I you know I think that in order to create particularly like great art you know you have to be within this you have to you know at least allow this experience of lack 
or potential failure to sort of like imbue everything you do. It's like the scientist who who discovers something new. You know, the scientific method relies on you know, you 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 don't know what's going to happen. The whole the whole the way that this experiment, you know, this great like um, innovation of 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 you know human potential is like. In order for the experiment to be an experiment or to discover something, you have to let go of everything. You know, obviously, after a while, science and knowledge builds up. But like, as you said earlier, Nina, like we we can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And as soon as we rely on that or we project some utopian, you know, fixedness into the future, we completely avoid the here and now. And we completely avoid like what actually potential really is. Yeah, I totally agree about this point about failure, also about um, error and obstacles. I mean, if you read Gaston Bachelard and a lot of um, French philosophy of science and Canguillem as well, they're both very influential for Foucault. They they make it very clear that the history of science, I mean, of course, it's not a linear process, but just how much it depends, if you like, on randomness, contingency, chaos, error, accident, you know, and there, there are lots of very famous stories about how things are discovered through, you know, accidents, basically. And, you know, but in a broader sense, that idea of failure, I think, absolutely, it's, it's, I mean, Simone de Beauvoir makes this point very clearly, and I love this point in The Second Sex, where she says, in a way, women won't be free until they're able to fail. So freedom is basically the freedom to fail, because the moment you're not dependent you know, and she she doesn't think that, you know, labor will save women. It's not suffrage that makes women equal. It's not, you know, entry into the market, you know, to, to the labor market that makes women free, right? Those are not enough, right? Those are not sufficient conditions for, for freedom or equality. But what is, is the, is the lack, you know, that's what free, it's, it's, it's the capacity or the, I mean, also on the part of women to give up on forms of dependency, you know, to, to say, I I want to be independent, you know, and that, that word is kind of overused and it's a sort of cliche in a certain feminist sense. But actually what de Beauvoir really means is basically having this vertiginous, open relationship to your own capacity to fail and having, in a way, no one else to blame but yourself. And that's what freedom is. And that's the sort of freedom that women have been um, uh, prevented from having through their own you know, bind binding to men or through men's protection or being dependent. And I love this, like this this failure as as lack, I suppose, or lack as failure.